Our sermon text this morning is Matthew chapter 5, verses 43 to 48. Again, Matthew chapter 5, verses 43 to 48. This is God's word. Listen to it. You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You, therefore, must be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Let us pray. Our gracious God, as we hear these words, as we feel them, we ask, O Lord, that you would not allow us to escape the weight of them. Lord, they make us uncomfortable. You're calling us, Lord, to do things which we are not capable of doing, of loving enemies, of being perfect as you are perfect. These things are too uh, too high for us, too great for us to attain. And yet this is the standard to which you have called us. And so we ask, Lord, that you would give us the power and the strength by your Spirit to obey these commands. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Now for the past several weeks, we have been considering passages of Scripture which most commentators regard as antitheses. You haven't heard me use this word before in, this, in these last several sermons. I break it out this morning for you. Each passage, beginning with chapter 5, verse 21, and ending with our verse this morning, have started out, You have heard that it was said. To which Jesus will later follow up, But I say to you, Jesus' statement is antithetical to, it's in opposition to the teaching of the rabbis. And so these are antitheses. Jesus has been taking popular teachings of the day. And he offers a different, a proper way of understanding what has been taught. He offers a different interpretation of scripture. And the final opposition statement in the Sermon on the Mount challenges accepted teaching of how God's people are to relate to our neighbors and to our enemies. Because they have been taught something which is grievously wrong. Now I think all of us can admit, it is very easy for us to love people who love us, isn't it? It's very easy for you to reciprocate love which has been given to you. Humanly speaking, however, it is impossible for you to love someone who hates you. It is impossible, humanly speaking, in your sinful nature to love someone who has expressed, who has manifested a hatred for you, who has manifested a desire that you be dead. It goes against our fallen nature. 
Well, in this passage this morning, Jesus commands his followers to do just that. He commands you and me to love people who would rather see us dead. He commands us to love our enemies. And so I'd ask you to think uh, on this thought as we work our way through this passage. Jesus commands us to love our enemies because God loved us while we were still enemies of his. And he has given us his spirit to make this possible. Jesus commands us to love our enemies because God loved us while we were still enemies of his. And he gives us his spirit to make this possible. We'll be looking at this passage in three sections. The first is hatred versus love, verses 43 to 44. The second section is sons of your father, verses 45 to 47. And the third section is perfection, verse 48. Again, hatred versus love, verses 43 to 44. Sons of your father, verses 45 to 47. And perfection, verse 48. So let's look first at hatred versus love. Verse 43 reads, You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Now, like all the other statements that Jesus has quoted in this section of his sermon, his listeners would have been familiar with this teaching. They would have known that this is the teaching of the rabbis. Jesus is quoting. He's quoting what he's heard in the synagogue, in the temple, when he was growing up. This would have been the conventionally held wisdom of that day. It's the conventionally held wisdom of our day. Nothing has changed tremendously. Easily by this time, Jesus' listeners would know what to expect, however, in this sermon. They would know that when Jesus gives them a teaching of the rabbis, that he's going to take it on. He's going to challenge it. He's going to contradict it. The first part of the quotation that Jesus gives does indeed quote Scripture. It comes from Scripture. Leviticus 19, verse 18 says, You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There it is. Love your neighbor. Now, even though there might be times when you would not want to, people would not want to love their neighbor, it's commanded in Scripture. And so the Israelites, they had to obey it. It was right there. But what did they leave out? What did the rabbis leave out? What did Jesus, uh, as he's quoting the rabbis, what did he not quote from Leviticus 19, verse 18? He didn't say, as yourself. The rabbis were limiting the scope of the love that, that the Israelites were to have for their neighbors. You are to love your neighbor as yourself. You leave that off, and love is, is extremely easy <laughs> to determine, to change what it means, to change its value. To love as yourself, however, is something quite different. He's calling us to a higher standard. He's calling us to love others as we expect to be loved by other people. The second half of the statement... The second half of the statement that Jesus quotes, and hate your enemy, is where the real problems lie. Now the greater context of this passage in, Mos- in, excuse me, in Leviticus chapter 19 is, is Moses speaking to all of the congregation of the people of Israel. He's speaking to everyone here. He's gathered them together. He's speaking to the entire uh, group of, of the Israelites. In the immediate context of Leviticus chapter 19 verse 18 is Moses commanding the people not to hate their brother. Or take vengeance or bear a grudge grudge against the sons of their own people. So they would have understood neighbor to be referring to their fellow Israelites. They would have understood neighbor to be those people who came out of Egypt with them. These are the people they are to love as their neighbor. 
And so from this passage, the rabbis could wrongfully infer that they were to hate their enemy. Enemy is not included in love. It's not included in neighbor. Therefore, we must hate our enemy. Their enemy was anyone who was not a fellow Israelite. But there's a problem with this mentality, as much as it may be convenient for them to hold it. There's a problem with it. In verse 10 of the same chapter in Leviticus, God commands his people. You remember this when we went through the book of Ruth. God commands his people not to reap up to the very edge of the field. He commands his people not to take, to strip the vineyards bare of grapes. Why does he do this? He says, for the poor and the sojourners in your midst, so that they will not be left destitute, so that they will not be left without a means of of sustenance. Now, sojourners were resident aliens in, in, uh, in Israel. They were the ones who who were in Israel, were not of Israel. They were not ethnic Jews. In spite of their differences in race and nationality, God commanded his people to leave enough food in the fields for these people, these aliens, to survive. In Leviticus 19, verse 34, he also commanded the Israelites to treat these sojourners like they were one of the Israelites, loving them, as themselves. And why does he do this? Why is the reason? What is the reason he gives for this? He reminds them, because you were sojourners in Egypt. You were once where they are. He reminds them that this is exactly what they came from before God rescued them. And it must be admitted, while God does not command his people to show the Canaanites uh, mercy, he says to show them no mercy when they crossed the Jordan River. Because the instruments, uh, the Israelites were the instruments by which God carried out his justice on this people. They were an idolatrous people. And God used the Israelites to bring the Canaanites to justice. Well, there is no doubt that we as God's people should hate what God hates. We should hate what he hates. We should hate sin. This is a perfect hatred, and it's akin to righteous anger. But that does not preclude us from treating even our enemies as our neighbor. It does not preclude us from treating our enemies with dignity and with love. And so the rabbis of Jesus' day might have been standing on centuries of interpretation. They might have been able to point back to Moses himself and say, well, this is how we've understood this. But Jesus does not let these misinterpretations of his word stand. In verse 44, Jesus counters this teaching. He says, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Now, by enemy, Jesus probably meant personal enemies. He probably meant those people who have shown animosity towards you, have shown a dislike for you. A personal enemy, someone who has a a personal vendetta against you because of something that you've either done against them or they have perceived that you've done against them, some wrong. But enemy would also include the enemies of God, and, and primarily the enemies of God. Who are the enemies of God? They're the ones who hate God. Why do they hate God? How do they hate God? They hate God by their, their, their disbelief, their failure to believe in him as their God. Have you ever thought of disbelief as an act of hatred toward God? 
To believe that he is not who he said he is in his word? This is a hatred of God. We are commanded to love people who hate us. They may hate us for good reason or for no reason at all. But either way, Jesus says we must love them. But we must also love the enemies of God. We must love those who hate him. And in many cases, our personal enemies will be the ones who hate God. There are some people who you've never met who hate you because you named the name of Jesus Christ. There are people who hate Christ and hate his followers. But Jesus tells us to love them. In Luke's account of this sermon in chapter 6, verse 27, he quotes Jesus as saying, Love your enemies, do good to those who hate you. And so we can see from this wider scope of Jesus' teaching that loving our enemies involves our deeds as well as our words. We are to do good to them. We're to offer them that glass of cold water, even when we know they hate us, especially if we know that they hate us or they hate God. We are called, when they are in need, to give them assistance, to do good to them. But loving our enemies involves more than words or deeds. Jesus says in verse 44, and pray for those who persecute you. Have you ever tried to pray for someone whom you know hates you? Have you ever tried to pray for someone who you know cannot stand to look at your face? It's very difficult. It's impossible in our sinful human nature nature to do such a thing. Many of you are familiar with Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He was a Lutheran pastor in Germany during uh, Nazi-occupied Germany. He died in a gas chamber because of his willingness to help Jewish people escape uh, their fate. Regarding praying for enemies, he said in his book, The Cost of Discipleship, through the medium of prayer, we go to our enemy, stand by his side, and plead for him to God. Can you imagine if you were a Jewish person praying for Hitler, praying for Nazis? Can you imagine people who seek to eradicate you and your type from the face of the earth going before the Lord and praying on their behalf? This is what Jesus calls us to do. Pastor John Stott offers this helpful insight. He says, it is impossible to pray for someone without loving him. And impossible to go on praying for him without discovering that your love for him grows and matures. We must not, therefore, wait before praying for an enemy until we feel some love for him in our heart. We must begin to pray for him before we are conscious of loving him. And we shall find our love break first into bud and then into blossom. If you're waiting to feel love for your enemy before you pray for him, you will never pray for him. But if you pray for him, the Lord will cultivate in you a love for him because it's impossible to love someone who you're praying for. Let's look at verses 45 to 47. Sons of your father. Verse 45 continues the sentence that Jesus began in 44. He says that we are to love our enemies and to pray for them so that you may be the sons of your father who is in heaven. For he makes his son 
to rise on the, the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. Loving our enemies and praying for them sets us apart from unbelievers. It is an activity that only Christians can do. These activities identify us as the children of our Heavenly Father. We show to the world that we are sons of God. Our sinful natures do not permit us to love our, our enemies. But sons behave like their fathers, don't they? Like father, like son. This is what Jesus is saying. If you are a child of God, you will behave like him. If we are the sons of God, we will exhibit the same love that our father exhibits. Well, how does God demonstrate his love for his enemies? How does God demonstrate the love for those who hate him? Who shake their fist at him? How does God do this? He causes the rain to pour down on the just and the unjust. He causes his son, his son, which he owns, which he creates, he causes his son to shine on the evil and on the good. This is how God loves those who hate him. Now, TV weathercasters, you're all aware of this. It drives me crazy. They always want to take credit for the nice, sunny weather, don't they? They always want to place the blame on somebody else when rain comes. But sunshine and rain are both wonderful blessings to our humanity. Without them, we could not exist. We would have died out without sunshine. We would have died out without rain. And neither comes from the TV weatherman. They come from God. They come from His love, from his love for His creatures. He is our Creator. And He did not create this world. He did not create uh, the earth and the people upon it simply to perish. He loves us, and he pours out rain. He shines down sun on those who love him as well as those who hate him. This type of love is indiscriminate. It is unselective. Calvin called it God's common grace. Undeserving as all humanity may be, God graciously provides the most fundamental components for our existence. Before we were, uh, excuse me, God's common grace poured out on everyone. Give us an example of how to love our, our enemies indiscriminately. And this is what Jesus points to. There's no favoritism in God's common grace. God graciously provides. But it's God's saving grace by which he brings us to repentance and gives us the gift of faith. That also provides for us an example, doesn't it? Before we were enabled through saving grace to embrace God in love, we were his enemies. Before you turned to the Lord, repented of your sins, embraced him in faith, you hated God. Do you realize this? You were his enemies. Before our hearts were brought to life by the Holy Spirit, before we were made regenerate, we hated God. But here's the gospel. While we were still enemies with God, he sent his son to die for you and me. While we still hated God, he sent Jesus Christ to die on the cross in your place and in my place. Had we gone to the cross, we would have continued to shake our fist at God, at our creator. But Jesus went to the cross in our place. He willingly went to the cross in the place of people who wanted him dead. 
who could not stand the sight of his face. Now, obviously, this is saving grace, and this saving grace is not for us to give. It is God's alone to give. But what does God call his people to do? We can love our enemies in a similar way to God when he gives saving grace to his enemies. We can love our enemies by sharing the good news of the gospel to other people. We are called indiscriminately to sow seeds, the seeds of the good news. We're called to cast, to broadcast good news to people far and wide. The doctrine of the free offer of the gospel to all mankind is firmly rooted in the doctrine of God's common grace. We don't know who the Lord will call to himself, but he still uses us. He uses human means. He uses the proclamation of the word to call sinners to himself. And you and I have no right to restrict who hears the good news of Christ. We are to shower people with the gospel. Well, in verses 46 and 47, Jesus gives two examples which would certainly have gotten under the skin of his hearers. He says, for if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? What credit is it to you? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? Tax collectors. These were the traitors. They were Jewish people who worked for the Roman government. They were notoriously corrupt. You all know this. You've heard this a thousand times. Gentiles. They were the dogs. The Jewish people did not care for them. For Jesus to use these two, this was a selective use on his part of two groups of people that Jewish people could not stand. Jesus is saying that to follow the teaching of the rabbis, to love our neighbors and to hate our enemies, is to do nothing more than what these hated groups of people are already doing. They're doing nothing more. Now it is characteristic of sinful nature to love those who love you. It's very easy to love those who love you. There's nothing unique about this kind of love. But God calls his people to be a peculiar people. We're to be different from the rest of the world. We don't look like, we don't behave like the rest of the world. We're different. And so in verse 47, Jesus asks these people that are gathered before him on the side of this mountain, what more are you doing than others? What more are you doing? This is the basic Loving your neighbors, loving those who love you. Oh yeah, everybody does that. What more are you doing than that? The Gentiles do that. The tax collectors do that. What more are you doing? It is nothing to love your neighbor who by definition of the rabbis is your Israelite brother. It is quite another matter to love someone who wants you dead. This is God's love, which in common grace gives sun and rain to the wicked. Well, let's turn now and look at verse 48. Perfection. Jesus concludes this sermon, uh, this section of his sermon, his countering the instruction of the rabbis with verse 48, where he says, You therefore must be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Jesus is emphatic at this point. You therefore, you therefore must be perfect. He provides no escape for his listeners. His demand is perfection. 
Now, some in the history of the church have used this verse to say uh, that we are capable of, of achieving sinless perfection in this life. This is called perfectionism. And they might ask when they get to this verse, why would Jesus command perfection if we are incapable of being perfect? Why would he command it? But Jesus contradicts this theology, contradicts this, this misunderstanding of this passage. Just a few la- verses later, in this, uh, in this very same sermon, in the prayer, which we all said together uh, just a few moments ago, Jesus will teach his disciples to constantly pray, forgive us our debts. And this is a future, this is a continual prayer that we must pray. We pray it now, we pray it for the rest of our lives. Forgive us our debts. If we are capable of achieving perfection, why does he command us to ask for forgiveness? The implication here is that we are continuously uh, in need of forgiveness because we are continually sinning. Well, verse 48, and you probably have picked up on this. You've heard the echo. It, It clearly echoes Leviticus 19, verse 2. 1 Timothy 1.16, you shall be holy. Excuse me, 1 Peter 1.16, you shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. And in fact, the word order and the sentence structure of this passage uh, in the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, and Matthew 5.48 are nearly identical. The main exception is that at this point, Jesus replaces holy with perfect. In the parallel passage in Luke, Chapter 6, verse 36, Jesus says, Be merciful, even as your Father is merciful. Holiness, perfection, mercy. In the context of loving our enemies, which is what this is in, these things are very, very close. They're very similar. They're all related. The ideal, the standard for which we as Christians are to strive, is holiness. This is perfection. We are to set before us holiness. The holiness of God is our goal. That is the target at which we aim. Calvin said, holiness is not a merit by which we can attain communion with God. It's not a merit by which we attain communion with God, but it is a gift of Christ, which enables us to cling to him and to follow him. As we grow in holiness, we're more and more able to cling to our Savior. He also said that, if, that it would be unfair to demand evangelical perfection before we acknowledge anyone as a Christian. There would be no church if we set such a standard of absolute perfection. For the best of us are still far from the ideal. So while we strive for this goal, we strive for perfection, we strive for holiness, we strive to be merciful to those who hate us, we're going to fall short. Set our goal, have our standard, and yet be forgiving. And receive God's forgiveness when we fail. Scripture and our experience tell us that there is no perfection in human beings this side of heaven. The idea that humans at their basic, in their basic nature are good, is a lie. There is no perfection this side of heaven. Jesus is not setting us up for failure here. But as he said in the Beatitudes, we are to hunger. We are to thirst for righteousness, for God's holiness. Holiness, perfection, is to be our goal. And in terms of loving our enemies, being perfect as God is perfect means showing mercy. It means having compassion on them. 
Just imagine if God behaved as we do. Just imagine if he loved those who were easy to love, loved those who loved him and hated his enemies. There would be no sunshine. There would be no rain. We would all have perished long ago. Most importantly, there would be no salvation for anyone if God did not love his enemies. We would all still be at enmity with God. We would all still hate him and oppose him and rebel against him at every chance. We would hate him with the hatred of unbelief. If you trust in the Lord Jesus, then you know or you will know what it means to be the enemies of the world. You'll know what it means to feel the hatred of those who hate God. Directly or indirectly, you will be the object of the hatred that they have for your heavenly Father because you are his child. Jesus commands you to love them anyway. He commands you to do good deeds to them. He commands you to pray for them. He commands you when someone does a great injustice to you, when someone treats you poorly and with hatred, to love them. And to lift them before your heavenly father with prayer. If you don't trust Jesus, if you don't know him, if you haven't placed your faith in him this morning, then you are at enmity with him. If you've not come before the Lord, if you've not repented of your sins and embraced Jesus Christ in faith, if you've not stood before a public gathering and professed your faith in Jesus Christ, you hate God. But here is God's grace. Even though you hate him, Jesus Christ died for sinners like you and me. He took your place and he took my place on the cross. And all he asks is that you confess him as Lord. You repent of your sins. In just a few minutes, we will be celebrating the Lord's Supper. In a very important way, this meal serves as a regular reminder that Jesus offered his body and his blood as a substitute for his enemies. He took upon himself the punishment that we deserved because of our unrighteous anger toward God. And he gave us this meal. He gave us the juice, he gave us the bread as a means of imparting grace to us, to all who believe so that we may grow in holiness, being made perfect by the Holy Spirit. Let us come before the Lord in prayer. Our gracious God, we have confessed to you already that we cannot stand before you as sinners in your sight, and yet you lift us up. You lift up our countenance before you. You have indeed imparted grace to us, O Lord. But Father, you lay before us a weighty thing to love our enemies, to pray for those who persecute us for the name of Christ. And so we ask, O Lord, by your Spirit to make us able to do that which is impossible for us to do in our sinful nature. We pray, O Lord, that we would indeed strive for for perfection. And we pray all these things in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.